Hi, and welcome to the Viewfinders Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Graham Dargie, and today my guest is Jim Richardson, a photographer from Kansas, USA, who's shot more than 50 stories for National Geographic magazine. 50 stories for National Geographic. I'm so excited about this week's episode, and I'll introduce you to Jim in a minute. Well, I hope you've been enjoying season two of the podcast. I'm having a brilliant time making it and talking to these fantastic photographers from all around the world. And I've got a couple of great episodes up my sleeve to round out the rest of the season. If you have been enjoying it, then let me invite you to subscribe, leave a five-star review and share the show with your photography friends. It makes a real difference. And I really, really appreciate that kind of help. Um, I love connecting with listeners and you can find me on Instagram at Viewfinders Podcast and check out view-finders.co.uk where you can find out all about what I do, get my free long exposure tutorial video and check out some other episodes. Last week on the show I told you about the next Viewfinders Live event. Well there's been a change of plans and that event is now postponed but I'm quite excited to announce that it's been replaced with an evening with this week's guest Jim Richardson. I had such a great chat with Jim, which you'll hear in a minute, so I invited Jim to do Viewfinders Live. He agreed, and so we're going ahead with that on Monday, the 29th of March, 2021. Tickets are on sale now at Eventbrite for just £10, plus booking fee, that's £11.37 in total. Link in the show notes. You're going to hear how great Jim is in this interview, and if you feel like you'd like to hear more from Jim, then you can at Viewfinders Live in just a few weeks. Okay, time to introduce the aforementioned Jim Richardson, a photographer from Lindsberg, Kansas, who's shot over 50 stories for National Geographic. Jim has a bit of an obsession with Scotland, and his Instagram feed where you can get a daily Scotland fix has over 450,000 followers. In 2015, Jim was voted the photographer's photographer by fellow National Geographic assignment photographers. In photography, it doesn't get better than that. That's like winning an Oscar that was voted for only by other Oscar winners. Jim's been featured on ABC News, CBS News, he's received an honorary doctorate from Kansas State University, and he's the founder of Eyes on Earth, an educational collaborative seeking to inspire the next generation of environmental photographers. I was definitely inspired talking to Jim and our conversation touches on Jim's work in Scotland, some of the inner workings at National Geographic, playfulness in his photography, the environmental and agricultural aspects of Jim's photography, of course camera gear and technique, but so much more as well. It was a genuine privilege for me to talk to a photographer with such knowledge and experience and with such stature in the business. I'm sure you're going to take plenty away from this episode. Here's my conversation with Jim Richardson. Hi, Jim. Welcome to the podcast. How's things? Oh, just fine. Thank you for having me here, Graham. No, you're welcome. I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you because um, I've been following your feed for a while. I actually assumed you were Scottish because everything, nearly everything on your feed is is Scotland. But anyway, for, for people who may not know, um, would you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your photography? Sure, sure. Yeah, I'm Jim Richardson. I am a, a photographer. I have been for a long time for National Geographic magazine. Um, I got my start doing sort of uh, documentary photography and then eventually went into doing editorial photography for uh, for National Geographic, which I did for oh, 35 years. Um, uh, stories all over. And uh, and uh, yeah, you, you can be forgiven for thinking I'm a uh, 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 
Scottish because my my Instagram feed I I really focused on Scotland. I've mm. I've done about twenty five years worth of work in Scotland on various stories and love the place. So it's good to be talking to you today about that mm-hmm. because I I uh, it's it's been one of the richest parts of my career. Yeah, well, we'll definitely talk about that. Um, what I I love about your photography, Jim, um, just looking through your Instagram, but also your your website, which is I've really enjoyed researching that for this interview. Uh, there's sort of a, I think there's a, a charm about the work. There's an ease about the photography. Um, it seems effortless. It's doing everything it needs to do. It doesn't look like it's trying too hard. Um, it seems like it's accessible. It's enjoyable to mm-hmm. look at. But when I really study the work, I just think it's so fantastic, strong work. Every image is telling a story. I think everything is that's in the image is there for a reason. Nothing that doesn't need to be there. Um, the use of light, I think, is brilliant, whether that's ambient light or maybe I see some speed lights flashing in there somewhere. Um, I love it. So I'm I'm so excited to talk to you and, and dig into some of that work. But um, before we get to photography, um, is, is it right? Did you grow up on a farm? Am I right? Oh, yes. I grew up on a farm here in Kansas, um, mm-hmm. outside of a town of about 3,000 people, which is a pretty small town uh, out here. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, and is that is that this town that you're still in at the moment? No, uh, this is about eighty or ninety miles away. It's a little uh, old Swedish American uh, town. Uh, you know, all of these were all of these were uh, settled around eighteen sixty eight or eighteen seventy after the American Civil mm-hmm. War, and so mm-hmm. this one was uh, focused on Swedish immigrants. Um, I'm not Swedish. Uh, but, uh, but yes, uh, the phone book is full of Andersons and, uh, okay. and the like. Yeah. <laughs> How was it like growing up there? I guess that Kansas is quite agricultural, quite kind of rural. Is that right? Oh yes. Yes. Um, I mean, uh, we had a small farm. It was already probably too small by the time, um, I was growing up and we had a dairy, uh, we milked cows and all those, all those kind of things. So yes, it was very much a, uh, uh, a rural growing up, um, you know, going out uh, hunting rabbits after school kind of things with my dogs. Mm-hmm. And uh, and my dad was a truck driver and and on his trips hauling eggs to Texas, um, he would stop in pawn shops along the way looking for cameras. He was an mm-hmm. amateur photographer right. looking for cameras. And so um, so my early access was to cameras like a one of my first cameras was a Zeiss Icoflex. I don't know if you've ever heard of those. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's Zeiss's answer to the Rolleiflex in the 1950s. Okay. Yeah, really quality, uh, quality stuff. Zeiss Tessar lens and all of that. <laughs> so I had access to really, uh, really some uh, pretty good cameras early on, and uh, learned to uh, do darkroom work out in the kitchen mm-hmm. at night. Uh, you always hope nobody would drive by and their headlights would shine in the window and ruin your print. But, but yeah, that's, that's, that's my, uh, that's my, uh, that's my background. Went to a one room school. Uh, you right. know, I mean, what, we had 16 kids in eight grades and, uh, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's pretty much the rural growing up out in the middle of, uh, the American Midwest. Yeah. It sounds to me that it just sounds really, um, like something that we would see in a movie or something like a Western type movie. Um, and it, maybe that's as exotic to to me as coming to Scotland is to you. Well, you know, m- many times uh, when I uh, <laughs> when I go to Scotland, and I talk to people about 
Scotland. You know, I, I, I often tell them, you know, that, well, going out to a little island in Scotland is very much like um, life uh, in a small town in Kansas, except you have more lighthouses, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the, I mean, the issues, uh, the, 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 the interdependence of people on each other, uh, the, the hard scrabble life of trying to make a living in some place that doesn't give it to you very easily. Mm-hmm. Um, all those, all those kind of things out on the edges of Scotland. If you go out to the Isle of Muck, you know, in the small isles, or you go out to the outer Hebrides and, uh, uh, Lewis and Harris, you know, um, you know, yeah, I could pretty well talk to a, a crofter on, on Harris, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and make sense of what he's, what he's feeling and, uh, and, the kind of things he has to deal with. So it's not that different. (laughs) Well, yeah, that was interesting that you said that because I was wondering if there were some kind of parallels there, uh, things that you recognized from that kind of island life that you seem quite fascinated by the Hebrides and the crofters Mm -hmm. and that kind of hard way of life that they have out there um, and with where you come from. And Orkney. But, but, you know, Orkney has such a strong agricultural tradition um, but they also have a strong sense of community life, mm-hmm. and uh, and so, oh, I mean, I could I could go to a wedding in um, in a small town in Kansas that I have, you know, and be uh, very much at home as I was uh, at a wedding uh, in Stromness uh, mm-hmm. many years ago. Um, you know, the, the they they would they would both be passing around the grog. And mm-hmm. uh, Glug, I'm sorry, is there probably? And, uh, um, you know, many of the same kind of things, but with, with their own twists. You know, that was, the, that was the first time where I'd ever seen all Lang Syne done at the end of the night, you know, with mm-hmm. everybody joining hands and coming together. That was, pretty, that was pretty fascinating to see. Okay, so was there ever an expectation that you would go into farming or something like that? Or when did photography really become a thing that you were going to do? No, I never thought I'd go into farming. But I, um, so I, I did go off to college, though. I had already been a, an amateur photographer for some time, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. I got to be a senior majoring in psychology um, after about five or six other majors, uh, Gad flying about uh, the uh, academic world, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> including things like electrical engineering and uh, music education and uh, lots of things. Uh, and I finally, I was second semester senior, and I kind of all of a sudden got to thinking what I would actually do if I were a psychologist, you know, and I didn't want to do that. And uh, about the same time, I got a, an opportunity to, to take a job with a student newspaper. Uh-huh. Um, I'd never done any journalism or taken any journalism classes, but it really stuck. Uh, and... and uh, I stayed on there doing that for uh, the student publications uh, for a while. And I got a, um, an internship at uh, the newspaper down the road in Topeka, Kansas, uh, mm-hmm. the capital, without really realizing that, that it was the absolute epicenter of opportunity for young photojournalists of the era. Um, mm. Probably, uh, let's see, three or four of the... Uh, of the directors of photography of National Geographic came out of that Topeka group uh, that I was mm. with. Um, and uh, the, uh, the editor of National Geographic came from that group. Um, so uh, it was it was really an opportunity. And that's where I really learned the business of, of photographing 
picture stories mm-hmm. uh, and doing all kinds of all kinds of photography on short deadlines uh-huh. <laughs> really short deadline <laughs> yeah so what kind of assignments would you have there with that paper everything from um, you know going out and covering the 1048 that was the cop talk for uh, an injury accident uh, the governor's office for proclamations Saturday uh, football uh, at the universities Friday night football at the high schools mm-hmm. um, picture stories uh, of social issues around we did a, we did five picture pages a week picture stories but so there would be that, and then there would be the hobby page, in which uh, that was uh, oh you'd go go out and, and photograph some guy who liked to paint uh, lead soldiers, you know that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, or uh, I mean that that would have been a good one. There were other ones that were kind of thin on the ground, uh, and uh, and uh, do a picture story out of it, you know, and you'd have oh, oh, thirty minutes to shoot the picture story. Mm-hmm. Um, so you got very good at it. Then there would be the assignments like uh, the real estate, you know, in which the real estate department was showing. So you do sort of like drive-by pictures of houses, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, oh, I, you know, cook of the week, you know, the the, the recipe uh, thing on Thursday. So mm-hmm. you go out and do a nice portrait of the woman cooking her cookies or whatever the recipe was. So, uh, you mean, the, a wide range of uh, – a wide range of stuff, uh, but mm. but what what really was good about it, Graham, was that, that you didn't have this luxury of time. Sometimes you did, but other times you would have. Oh, you would come in at uh, the Saturday morning journal shift, come in at seven thirty, and the deadline was nine forty-five, mm-hmm. and you would have three assignments. Right. So come in, shoot three assignments, get back to the office, process the film, make the prints write the captions and get them to the desk by 9:45. So 2 hours and 15 minutes. Yeah. So, so yeah. So you get slick. You get slick I mean, on that. Three different locations I mean, not you know one location. No, yeah. three different assignments driving between them and never the yeah. whole thing. Yes, you know, and, and so and and like doing a picture story, um, you know, yeah, really a a practical vision of that you had to have a lead story, a lead picture. And an opening picture and a closing picture and uh, several other elements to go with it. And, uh, you know, you'd, you'd go shoot the story and then uh, be thinking of what the layout would be uh, on the way back to the office. Um, I remember one time I got in late on a Saturday morning and I did uh, see I developed three rolls of film and did the layout and made the prints set the headline and wrote the captions in 18 minutes. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So when you're coming back, you're pre-visualizing how those images are going to lay out. Yeah. Uh, And then do you have to print it in that layout then? Yes. It sounds, what you've described, it sounds like fantastic as a school of how to be a photojournalist. It sounds amazing. Did you have a mentor there? Or I know you mentioned some other good guys came through there. Um, because you, they must have had to learn how to do that so well yeah. and so quickly. The, the main guy was Rich Clarkson, uh, who was uh, the director of photography there, who had built up uh, this whole thing. Is probably the, the one of the the best known uh, mentors of talent in American photojournalism. Right. Yes, uh, he went on to be director of photography at uh, National Geographic for a while. He uh, first for Sports Illustrated, he photographed fifty 
Final Four tournaments. He did his first Sports Illustrated cover at 19. Yeah. So. One, of those, <laughs> one of those guys. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, so... But um, it's so valuable to come up under someone like that. I really oh, yes. uh, envy that education that you've had there. I think it's you know, set uh, you up really well. There was one time, Graham, when, when I noticed, I, I watched him on the sideline shooting football. And uh, he had the he, he had the best lenses, by the way. Like he mm-hmm. had, early on there, he had a 300 millimeter F2.8 top core. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of that lens or anybody else, but it was the first of the 300 millimeter F2.8 lenses. Um, and it was a big monster thing, you know, mm-hmm. um, manual focus, of course, and manual F-stop and all that. Uh, but he had he had, had one of those, and, and it had a beautiful quality that really could make some cover pictures that were gorgeous. But I was mm-hmm. watching him on the sideline of football, and you know how American football goes up and down the field. And you mm-hmm. come to a place when you're shooting this stuff, you see, in which you can't get the whole player in on a horizontal frame. So Uh then you turn the camera vertically as they come Uh closer and closer to you on each play. Well, I noticed one time I'm watching him at a football game and I, and he was turning the camera vertically and he, while he still had enough space to do a horizontal frame. And I said, Monday morning, I go back to him. I said, I saw what you were doing. Why do you do that? Mm -hmm. And he said, because they don't put horizontal pictures on the cover of sports illustrated. (laughs) I go, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Always thinking. <laughs> Always thinking, yes. Always thinking yeah. about, oh, we're going to leave space up there for the headline. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you make make sure where you're putting the space in the picture because it's going to go yeah. in a layout. And you don't put you don't put important people in the center of the picture where it's going to go in the gutter. Those are all kind of lessons I learned uh, mm-hmm. from, uh, from, from him, yes. Mm-hmm. That's just fieldcraft, though, and so valuable that you can learn those things. Oh, yeah. Um, so from Topeka, how, how did you get to National Geographic then? What was the sort of timeline to there? There was a hiatus at, at, uh, in Denver. I, I, did, I went out there. Rich Clarkson left Topeka, and I followed him out to Denver Post, and I worked there for, for about five years um, <clears throat> as a special assignment photographer doing regional things. While I was at it, I was doing a story on the flooding of the Great Salt Lake in about 1984 uh, for our Sunday magazine. And I took those pictures and showed them at a, uh, a workshop where one of the National Geographic editors was also presenting. And he said, uh, why don't you come back to Washington with me and show them to the editors and uh, – and I did that, and they gave me an assignment to go ahead, go back and shoot some more and finish out that story. And that was the okay. first story that ran uh, for National Geographic in 1984. So, uh, but but that, that didn't really take, and I didn't really think I wanted to be a National Geographic photographer. Uh, when I started freelancing in 1985, 86, um, I called up the director of photography, Tom Kennedy, and and said i'm now a freelancer let me know if i can help you out and he said uh, he said to me i've got this story on atlanta i've been trying to assign i like what you did in cuba kansas um would you like to try that <laughs> uh-huh. and so 10 minutes after i started freelancing uh, i had uh, an assignment from national geographic but mm-hmm. the background is this was 15 years into my career and by then I knew National Geographic and they knew me and they knew uh, there wasn't it wasn't just a walk in the door, you know, kind of thing. So 
So that, uh, but, uh, and even that didn't really take, what really took us when I did the Colorado River story and okay. uh, as an environmental story, that's when it really, and then that set this, that set the stage for the rest of it. Okay. So when you say that took, that was one that went down well with the people at National Geographic. Is that what you mean? Yes. Um, and also it was a, it was a new model. Um, Previously, if we had done a Colorado River story, it would have been uh, uh, our great adventure going down the Colorado River, mm-hmm. you know, with lots of pictures of, uh, of uh, rapids in the Grand Canyon. So instead, we did this as uh, an environmental resource story. Water, water issues, the value of water, who get where it comes from, where it goes, uh, legalities of it, um, scarce resource in the desert land, uh, Stuff like that, and so it uh, it it changed the model of what that kind of a story would be for National Geographic. Right. And and I and I and I took those issues and I made pretty good pictures out of them. So that's it was a much broader scope to the way the story was was presented. Right. Um, I was curious about when you're working with that magazine, do the stories come from? the edit editors do they come from the writers from photographers how do you where does the sort of pointer for the story come from can can be all of the above and so there and and some photographers did simply wait till they got assignments um mm-hmm. i always thought it was a bad way to do business so um about 70 percent of the stories that i did for national geographic are things that i proposed so okay. story proposals could come from writers editors researchers um scientists all over mm-hmm. but there were, mm-hmm. were a number of us who made it our business to write story proposals uh and uh and i always wanted to do that because i wanted to make sure that that any assignment um uh, i photographed was something that was loaded with pictures and yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I, I didn't want to do an assignment that just had virtually no pictures to do mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I yeah. actually turned down some sites, some stories in which I thought there's no pictures here, you know. Yeah, and presumably it gives you an opportunity to be more invested in the story as well, which is going to lend you to do better work, I would think. And what I wanted to do there was I wanted to be the architect of the uh, of the the uh, the foundations of the story. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, in other words, I wanted it to be a visual story that would also have text with it. I did not want it to be a text story that the photographer would illustrate. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to make sure that it was a visual story first. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was glad to work with a writer, but I wasn't going to sit around and wait for the writer to come up with ideas. Yeah, but that circles back to your training in Topeka where you're shooting photo stories and that's your now that's your DNA okay yeah that's DNA is exactly right <laughs> so was the first story that you did there in Scotland was, was it plaid to the bone is that right yes it was okay so what was that story about it was a it was an old-fashioned National Geographic country story <laughs> mm-hmm. is what it was pretty much um there were some angles of it that was about the sort of the new Scotland uh, of the time. What was this? 94? Did we publish that? I forgot the Yeah. Um, but it was pretty much a country story. And, uh, and Tom Kennedy had, had uh, called me up and he said, and I had, I had just done a couple of thankless stories 
Well, you know, <laughs> that's a, that's, nobody wanted to do them, and I did them, and I made them look okay. So yeah, so he was he was he he was he owed me, and he called me up and he said, "I know you'd like to do a story in England. I don't have any story in England, but I've got a story on Scotland. Would you like to do that?" And I said, uh-huh. "Well, sure. Why not? This is I I had knew nothing." <laughs> Graham, I, okay. I I couldn't find Edinburgh on a map. I'm pretty sure, you know. Uh, but we did things like that in the in the time. We would never do that again. Um, at the time in which you know you took on a story, uh, you started researching it, and uh, that's basically what I did. And started reading the books and the guidebooks and coming a couple of old things, and I just about drowned in it. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I it's a very difficult thing to do those country stories because you're, you're looking for something ephemeral, uh, nebulous, uh, that's kind of like, uh, Oh, what's the, what's the essence of this place? Um, and yet you just, you can't just sort of like get in your car and go drive all the one lane roads up in Sutherland, you know, and hope that you hope that you find a sheep herder or something, you know, Mm -hmm. um, there has to be some substance. There has to be the, the core of it. So, but I just remember at the time, it just, I was panicked um, because I was trying to figure out what the picture should be, where I, where I should be. Didn't know where things were. I, I would call home to my wife and I would say, uh, I'm failing. They're going to figure out that I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, you know, all the, all of the, uh, all of the uh, panic that takes you, takes, takes over. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and she would say, Oh, stick it with it. And I did. And, uh, and it came out pretty well. And that was the beginning of all the, the subsequent Scotland stories. What do you remember? What was the, if there was one thing that really you actually got a hold of on that story that gave you the direction, um, to kind of see it through? Not one, one thing. Uh, I, I did, I did find a, I mean, I did find a, a couple of things. I mean, I, um, I reasoned that if there were big pe- crews of people who would show up at Stonehenge for the s- summer solstice, there must be something similar in some of the stone circles in Scotland, and that's that's how I got to Callanish, and that re- made a very a very nice uh, very nice picture. I knew about Aylandonan Castle; I'd seen pictures of that before, but but I knew that you couldn't just go do yet another Aylandonan Castle picture. You know that. Yeah. that there's been a few photographers hung around there, you know. So <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I made, I made it a point to find out when and where the full moon would be rising. And I remember the evening of being there. Have you, have you been there? Have you photographed it? Yeah. Okay. So you know that there's a there's a little parking lot across the bridge where everybody, yeah. you know, there were about fifty of us, all tripods, shoulder to shoulder, yeah. you know. Sun's going down. It's a nice sunset. Nice light on the sunset. Sun sun goes down. Forty seven photographers leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, honest to God, you know. So there's three of us, you know. There's myself, uh, a German photographer, and a Scottish photographer. And uh, the Scottish photographer's packing up his tripod, and and uh, I had I had looked it up on my astronomy program when the moon would be coming up. I knew that it was going to be coming up at like 7.17 or something like that. No, a little bit later than that. It would have been more like 9 uh, o'clock at night. And um, I I said to him, I said, you know, you might want to stick around. The full moon is going to rise in, uh, and I looked at my watch, and I said, I think 13 minutes. 
And he said, yeah, right, laddie. <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and he left. <laughs> so then it was just me and the German guy, and we stayed there for another two hours. And it just got better and better and better. <clears throat> you know, and it went through this deep, dark blue, uh, and it was absolutely gorgeous. And it was that late picture with the moon and the all blue and everything like this. And uh, I remember Dennis Dimmick was, was showing, my editor was showing it back in Washington, apparently. And he said, when that picture came on the screen, he heard several of the other editors in the room say, whoa. Good. So I, I knew that I had done something then that was, but that's the kind of level you have to get the pictures up over the bar yeah. to that kind of level and and you're presenting pictures to a room full of people who've seen a lot of pictures yeah. taken taken by a lot of really good photographers so mm -hmm. that the, the pressure is that oh my god they've seen this stuff before so how does that pressure fall on you do you do you feel that when you're out there with the camera in hand or does it motivate mm -hmm. you obviously you must manage to deal with it but what what effect does that have on you i'm scared to death yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> Scared to death, yeah, because because you know, I mean, well, there are several things about it. Is is that one? They picked me, and they're giving me all this this money and support to go do this. And you think, gee, they could have had William Albert Allard, or they could have had uh, Jim Stanfield, or they could have had anybody else, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And um, and I've got some responsibility here. The second thing, though, is um, is that uh, I know how easy it is to fail. And mm -hmm. and you you don't get those quality of images uh, and it doesn't come apart. And the third thing, of course, is that 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 I was never a staff photographer. Um, mm -hmm. And by then there just weren't any staff photographers. They'd uh, they'd gone all contract stuff. So my stories were always you're only as good as your last story of yeah. whether or not you're going to get a contract to do a new story. So it was always each story had a new contract. So you could you, you generally figured you could you could survive one mediocre story, but you couldn't survive two in National Geographic. So yeah, <laughs> scary. Yeah, I what, what I was one point I was going to pick up with you was on your one of your Instagram stories I was watching the other day. Um, there was a shot. There's horses or ponies. Oh yeah, and there's these three horses, and in the story, you were giving advice about how, you know that's the shot, and then you try and shoot it a few different ways. Um, and the, what really struck me about that, it really spoke to me um, because I could I, I sensed that you go at this with a playfulness. It seemed like a lot of good fun to you to shoot those horses with that island behind them in a few different ways. And um, I think it was the Isle of Muck. It is. And, yep. And it's obviously it's great advice to shoot it a few different ways. But what got me was just the, the sense of fun that you were having with it. And I thought, well, this is a guy who really has a playful approach to his work. And I thought, well, that's probably something I've lost out of in the last few years because it kind of becomes work, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I guess when you, you're feeling the, that pressure from the magazine, it's a big deal and you're expendable, as you've described. Uh, but still to retain that sense of we're just fun and playfulness that allows you to take the best pictures that you can. Is that a, a tricky line to, to walk Yes, you know, I the I, I must say about those horses, the, the I got like three pretty good pictures out of those horses yeah. in about a half an hour there. They were you know, kind of like I, I owe them. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Um, but yes, I mean, the, the my my operating mode in those kind of things is to try as as many different versions as time will allow, mm-hmm. you know, and every time trying to push to do something that I haven't thought of doing before in, in, in some, in some way. And so that sort of becomes the game is mm-hmm. how the hell are you going to make a yet another, another picture of it? Another angle of that though, was from way down low and the big mm-hmm. horses coming by and and that has a nice quality to it because it resonates with the Kelpie legend, you know, right. the horses coming out of the sea. Okay, so so I, when I'm doing those things, there's there's always I hope I go in armed with um, a lot of cultural background, so that I if I'm standing in front of something, I will recognize that I'm standing mm-hmm. in front of it. You know, yeah. one, you know. And then, and then two, just the playfulness of, of trying different, uh, different compositions, different ways of seeing it, saying different things, mm-hmm. because because um, one of the essential parts of say that always came out of doing National Geographic stories is 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 that is that each spread of the magazine would have to say something, and it would have to mm-hmm. say something different than the previous spread, so. So the idea was that the, these these pictures have to say something. They have to say isolation, power, beauty, grace, or they have to explain, you know, what what people are, are looking at. Um, it can never be just enough that that oh, it's a pretty place and this is a pretty picture. Mm-hmm. You know, there always has to be this under underlying stuff. So that's the game. That's mm-hmm. I mean that's the yeah that's the that's the sport. Uh, of okay. doing it uh, and the, the the real triumphs for me are not necessarily like right there at the moment the real triumphs for me are when you get back and you you put all this stuff together and you go oh you know i think i did something here this is one question i thought i would never ask on a photography podcast but can we talk about soil soil oh yes okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay so I was researching through your website and I was expecting the Scotland stuff, but the the one that really grabbed me was the soil project. So I don't know if that was one story or if it's just a, a few different strands that have come together in that one gallery. But I was just so taken by this gallery. Um, what can you tell me about that portfolio on your site, Soil? There was a story that we did on soil, but some of those pictures also came out of other stories about agriculture. So, yes, if people look at just my Instagram feed, you're just going to see Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um but but there are many aspects to my uh, my career and, and photographing agriculture and the problems of feeding the planet is probably the one that has more more editorial uh, substance, if it will, if you will. So, yes, the, the whole idea was that soil is this essential human resource. It, it, it is this 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 almost paper thin bit of life on the on the surface of the planet that makes our whole civilization possible in the way that it happened and and really in the way that it happened and developed over the last 10,000 years. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like, well, it's a really big deal. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And so, so then the research part of it kicks in and I, and I start looking around and, you know, virtually any time you see 
somebody uh, doing a soil story, what you see is you see some farmer out there kneeling down and he's got his hands together out in front of him and a handful mm -hmm. of soil. And I just kind of go, I just go, I, I, I looked at all that and I said, well, can't do that picture. No, yeah. not, not going to do that. No, <laughs> that's not going to cut it for National yeah. Geographic. And it doesn't, it doesn't show enough. So then okay. I start breaking it down into, okay, what do I want to show? And I want to show that that soil is incredibly rich. I want to show that it's been, uh, wasted through erosion that, um, it's incredibly complex when you get down to the biological level. Um, I'm kind of, you know, making up a list of 10 or 12, 15 things I want to show here. And then I start going out and trying to figure out, well, where can I go to photograph those things? You know, and some of, mm -hmm. some of them I go directly looking for. And some of them take a long time for the light bulb to go on. Mm -hmm. You know, like, for instance, uh, all the soil scientists would tell me, well, you have to photograph all of the 12 major soil types. I'm going, oh, my God, I don't know how to make a picture. <laughs> and, and, until I thought, oh, well, you know, wait a minute. What if we did soil profiles around the world with the farmers who depend upon the soil? And would that say something? And that worked really well. So I decided that I was going to do dig soil pits mm -hmm. all around the world where I could photograph the farmer with their soil. Right. And, and as it worked out... Oh, the difference between Cletus Reed up in Iowa with 18 inches of rich black topsoil compared to uh, Mariama Abdullah in Niger with just absolutely desecrated soil mm -hmm. visually was a huge contrast. Okay. Almost anybody looking at the magazine could look at those two pictures and go, oh, I get it. So it was about a year-long project by the time by the time it was done and published in the magazine. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean it's a it's a lot of head scratching about what you're going to photograph and where uh, and how. It's really interesting to hear that side of things because research I I, I kind of knew this before I spoke to you, but it's come up as a big thing for you. Um, you can't just go to some fields and start looking for <laughs> soil. You've got to have something more to go on, right? One of my greatest research uh, triumphs was during this soil story. Uh, I, I needed to photograph uh, soil salinity. This is where soils have, have gotten too much salt in them, you know. And I'm calling around to soil scientists and everything. And I get a, I get a name of a soil scientist out in California, I think. And I called up and I got hold of his secretary and I told her what I was looking for, and could I talk to him? And uh, <clears throat> and she says, just a moment, I'll go ask Dr. whatever his name was. She comes back in about three minutes and says, Dr. So-and-so says to go to the highway junction on the north side of Gunnison, Colorado, set your odometer to zero, drive 10.7 miles west, and look north. <laughs> 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 and sure enough 10.7 miles i looked north there's soil out there with salt all over the surface of it and it was perfect <laughs> and is that the, the leading shot in that gallery with the cross-section of the sort of dried dried out soil is that right 
Well, there was dried out soil with white, crusty salt on it. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, that, I see. That's it, man. <laughs> that's it. Well, that was a worthwhile phone call. Oh, boy. So you've got the research. So one thing I'm, I'm always I'm slightly curious about is you've got to research. How deep do you go with that? Do you storyboard an image um, where to the point, you know, the research to the point of this is the exact picture that I'm looking for and how much obviously you can't hold on to that too tightly if yeah. you do that when you get to a location. Where's the balance yeah. there? It's, yeah, you're right. It's a balance. Um, I mean, uh, there is the uh, I'm 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 pretty wedded to the idea of 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 what the picture should say, unless okay. I get out in the field and I discover that it's not true. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, there are a number of times that's come up. Something has been oversold or something, you know. So, but to the idea of what the picture should say, the actual execution of it in the field. I may have some vague ideas of what I'm after, but I'm always open to um, what will actually uh, make the picture uh, work. And so not storyboarded. If you're doing a movie, you see movie directors, oh, man, they really do have it storyboarded. No, I don't yeah. do that. Uh, but but especially on these complex editorial stories uh, that uh, where you're going to multiple locations and you have definite things that – that this needs to convey. Yeah, I I, uh, I have ideas pretty well, uh, pretty well pinned down. Yeah, this kind of segues to the um, women farmers and the soil and farmers sections as well. Mm -hmm. So just to go to the women's farmer section, these pictures are right up my street. The environmental portraits uh, with some lighting in there, and you all around the world with some fantastic characters in great environments. Um, that looks like a fun project to shoot. Was that related to some of uh, what you've just we've just been talking about? This was a this was another story. Uh, I, all these were done with Dennis Demick, my the, the same picture editor, um, mm -hmm. and he had grown up on a farm too. So, uh, and by that time, our friend Chris Johns, who had been in Topeka and had been uh, had majored in agriculture. Uh, at university with Dennis was now the editor of National Geographic. So you can mm -hmm. see us, three of us coming together on agriculture stories. Yeah. So um, this was a story that was about uh, the, the overall issue of feeding the planet. And Dennis broke it down that I would do the portraits of the farmers and George mm -hmm. Steinmetz, um, he would do the aerials of, of large-scale food production. But uh, my job was per to personalize it. To get in there and meet people and make them make them personal. So what we decided we would do was is basically that we would do these portraits of farmers all around the world, all in the same way, mm -hmm. and that basically came down to pretty much a thirty-five millimeter f one four lens mm -hmm. uh, at about five to six feet away, with a uh, with a soft box on them to kind of mm -hmm. give them a little bit of the uh, the glamour light. And so, and but the fundamentals of it that I wanted it was I wanted them to be real people with real names. I did not want them to be caricatures of third world farmers. I wanted them to be real real people. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to, to to give them the honor of photographing them with all the care that we would have photographed the CEO of a corporation. And yeah. and, and and I wanted the variety. So by photographing them all in the same way then the differences in their situations, whether it's a farmer up at 14,000 feet in Peru or a woman growing cabbages in Ukraine or 
women out in the fields with rice in Bali would that those differences would be the photographs. Now, I put together on the website a lot of the a lot of the women and well over half of the photographs were women, but we didn't go out with the idea of photographing just women. But the fact of the matter is that in the okay. world today, more than half of the farmers in the world are women. And um, and we don't recognize that. And I was determined that from my research that we would uh, we would we would do that. And and they were they were wonderful characters. Now I didn't know who I was going to find when I went there, but you know um, I call up the uh, the Potato Research Council in Lima, Peru, and say where can I go and and how would I get there and you know and they they sent out one of their people with me uh, to, up into the fields and we started finding care. And one of them was uh, Juana Valerio, the woman that you see sort of she's got the red. Is, is I, uh, I don't have the picture in front of me, the, the, a red shirt or something on, you know. Um, and then there was another woman, though, that, that had a very uh, a riveting face. Uh, yeah. And they were up there in the Andes. Um, yeah. And it was uh, growing not potatoes, but she was growing oka, which is the type of tuber. Um, uh-huh. And and but, you know, so we're just going to go on out there and we're we're going around to the fields and farmers and meeting them. And, and every once in a while you find somebody who's really got the, the, uh, the look. There's the woman, uh, Oksana, uh, Alexandra uh, in Ukraine with the, with the cabbages. Oh my, uh-huh. oh my God, she looked great. <laughs> I forgot. To. Yeah. She's, yeah. It's fantastic. The other one I really love is the, there's a banana lady. Oh, that was just back inside. That wasn't lit. That one was just back inside a doorway in uh-huh. uh, in Bangladesh. Oh yeah, she had she had she was just a great character, yeah. and uh, and she looked and looked great, you know. So yeah, yeah, it's just it's so it's such a strong um, gallery, and I really it comes across the way that you described that how you treated the people that you photographed with with respect. So it just looks like a a really fun project, though, if they're going to send you around the world to photograph (laughs) amazing people in amazing places. That's what we think of when we think of National Geographic photography. Yes. And and the the other thing about it for me, though, was that it's it's important. It's important that we give those kind of people their due, uh, that we that we recognize where our food comes from and mm. what we're going to have to do um, in the next 50 years to feed. Uh, what are we going to get up to? 11 billion people on the planet before it levels mm. off. Yeah. You know, so what about it's not always like that, is it? What about some tough times? Have you had some difficult spells in your career where you've just thought this is too much? Oh, yes, plenty. Um, I mean, I, th- I think probably too many to remember. I probably mm-hmm. tried to forget them. Myriad failures. Oh, and, and, and there, and there, it, it, so here's what I would do. Say there was some issue that I really needed. Uh, what I would do was um, I would research maybe 10 to 15 different possibilities of places to photograph that idea. Then I would narrow it down to the top three. And I would photograph each one of them, knowing that probably at least one of them would fall through, would just wouldn't make wouldn't make a good enough picture. And my friend Joel Sartori, uh, who does the photo arc, you know, that was always his his strategy is was begin the day with three can't fail 
possibilities mm-hmm. and and have two backups within 15 minutes <laughs> <laughs> yeah because they will fail you will mm-hmm. fail you'll be i mean i can't tell you how many times i've been in front of stuff and not gotten the picture mm. you know and, and you know when it really hurts the most is when you are standing next to some another photographer <laughs> you're standing there shoulder to shoulder yeah and and you go you look at this and you go this is rubbish there's no picture here and that photographer picks up their cameras and points it at exactly the same stuff mm-hmm. and shoots a picture and shows you out on the back of their screen and they got a picture mm-hmm. now, that is really crushing yeah, that's when you feel like you're in the wrong job. Yeah, I was just talking to a sports photographer. He said exactly the same thing just the other day. Really? Yeah, and this is a really top-level guy as well. So, uh, yeah. Thank God it's not just me. No, no, it's not just you. <laughs> so just one thing I wanted to just circle back to so that we spoke about earlier. You would, We talk about um, Topeka and you were working very quickly. Mm-hmm. Did that habit of working quickly... Is that still with you? Because you probably presumably had a bit more time with a lot of the National Geographic work to do things. Right. Do you still find yourself working in that very quick way? Yes, but not in the same way. Not in the same way that, oh, I've got to be out here and, and do these pictures in 15 minutes, you know. Um, there, I'll, I'll, I'll approach this with, with two answers that I hope in some total will give the the picture. At National Geographic, there were a number of times in which very well-known and very successful news magazine photographers were hired to do a National Geographic story, and they would very often fail. And they would fail because, not because they didn't do good pictures, but because they didn't do great pictures. They, They did very good news pictures at the same level that they did on Time Magazine and Newsweek. You know, and they they would do a lot of them, but none of the pictures would ever transcend. They would they would never sort of stick with this place and just keep plugging away until they did something transcendental. They would they wouldn't do that. Okay, so there is that. There is the idea that you're going to stick with it in a place till something really you really make something work. It doesn't mean that you're going to go more slowly that you're just going to hang around, you know, the stones of Stennis until something wonderful happens. Well, yeah, I'm still out there going, you know, gosh, the light is coming by. It's coming by very fast. I've got to get it, you know, quickly while it happens. You know, even if you're out there at night, light painting the standing stones, you know, Mm -hmm. it's always a bit of panic because the light is keeping going down and you only have a certain window when this can happen. And, 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 and can you make something really special happen in that, in that time frame? And yet for National Geographic, yes, I could go back two, three, four days, you know, and just keep plugging away at it. But it would, that would only do, only, only do me good is if the product of doing that was to do something way better, way better than I ever imagined I could. To answer your question though, the, 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 the farmers, any one of those farmers, like the, the woman that you saw there, the, the vertical picture of the uh, woman with the uh, potatoes and whatnot, mm-hmm. you know, I had about three minutes with her. She wore out fast. Yeah. So no, you don't, <laughs> it's, it's not like you can just kind of set up the studio and, and play around with it for two hours. No, yeah. people aren't going to live, uh, do that. 
Is it okay if we talk about camera gear for a few minutes? So, oh, sure. Um, yeah. So, um, what kind of what's a what's a go to for you? What comes out of the bag? Oh, I, I think it's probably a fairly standard bag for a lot of my work. It would have been my Nikon D the late later era, you know, my Nikon D eight hundred or D eight hundred E, my a sixteen uh, sixteen to thirty five f four, twenty four to seventy, and then. 70 to 200, you know, and then I carried a 300 and I had a, um, oh, if I was shooting night skies, I had the 14 to 24 Mm -hmm. and I'd have a macro lens if I, but, but, but just out in the field. So there would be the camera bag that would go in the plane with me. And then there would be the, uh, the, the case with the extra lenses for other specialties or backups. I remember when I was doing the farmers, I, I took two, 35 millimeter f1.4 lenses mm-hmm. <laughs> Guess, just in case uh, i couldn't couldn't live without it so <laughs> <laughs> and so um some speed lights as well would that be right oh well that yes in that case the lighting kit there was i had a four square which is a um you know a four square i i do know okay, what uh, that is yeah i don't know if people listening will know maybe you can d- describe it's a, that it's a soft box specifically made with brackets inside so that you could mount speed lights mm-hmm. like a Nikon SB 800, I forgot 900, whatever they are today, you know. Yeah. And I, I put three SB 800s in there and I fired them with uh, radio poppers. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a, a radio remote kind of arrangement. So that would let me do high speed sunlight sync. Yeah. And that was essential because I had to be able to shoot at a eight thousandth of a second at f2 in pretty much broad daylight to get the 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 out of focus background Mm -hmm. and yet fill the shadows very very nicely and and but not make the whole thing look exotically lit yeah there was there was about it that we wanted the transparency that that the picture was about the people it wasn't about the photographer yeah yeah um, it's such a great way to work. I I love working with speed lights, and I've tried other bigger light portable light systems, but the, the speed lights just give me so much control. And I've got four in my mm. bag, and it's just you can do anything. It's really amazing. Oh, and you can put you know, putting them around the room. You can oh you can light, especially with high ISO today, mm-hmm. you can light a lot of stuff with some speed lights. Yeah, and when it comes to camera craft, when the camera's in your hand, are you? Are you sort of using the camera in manual all the time, or do you have other sort of go-to ways for using the camera depending on what you're shooting? Um, I would have uh, sometimes manual. Uh, but my go-to method would be I would put it on aperture preferred automatic mm-hmm. and just do the uh, do the plus and minus compensation uh, to get it uh, light and dark enough until that became so cumbersome and then i'd switch over to manual yeah yeah okay you know yeah kind of like by the time you're out there doing 30 second time exposures uh of standing stones at night no no it's manual yeah yeah just put on manual and (laughs) be done with it yeah Yeah. um okay that that brings us to uh, a round which i call double exposure where i like to choose a picture (laughs) of yours to ask you about and then maybe you can choose one um that's particularly memorable for you as well I chose a few that I might have gone to, but the these birds at St. Kilda, there's a picture, mm-hmm. it kind of looks like it's from Jurassic Park. Um, <laughs> do you know what yeah. I mean? The, the, the rock oh, face yes. kind of peaks up like this, and these birds are coming over the top. Can you talk a little bit about that picture? It's got such atmosphere. It, uh, yeah. Uh, 
I had uh, I had been that was on the Outer Hebrides story that I was working on, and I had basically I had seen that oh there's lots of pictures of Boray that's Boray okay. there that that uninhabited island in the Saint Kilda group a um, lot of pictures and everything but there aren't any sunset pictures or there aren't any sunrise pictures mm-hmm. and I I thought about that for a while then I finally figured out oh because everybody who goes out there is on a day trip. Uh-huh. They 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 leave at seven in the morning. It takes four hours to get out there. You, you're there for four hours, and then you're going by three in the afternoon. You're going home. Mm-hmm. You know. So I I hired a boat okay. specifically to have a, have an uh, an overnight there, and we went out, and oh, it was awful. Um, <laughs> the island was totally socked in. Uh-huh. You know, you get shrouded in clouds. You know, and then oh, for God's sakes, twenty five hundred dollars down the drain here. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, so we went around the island. When we came around on the north side, <clears throat> we got a little break in the sunlight, and that shaft of light came onto the cliffs there, mm-hmm. and the birds started swarming out, and it was incredible. Mm-hmm. And the the deck of the boat is pitching. The crewman is holding onto my belt so I won't go over the side. You know, I'm hooping and hollering, <laughs> uh, but I didn't think it was that picture. I did. You know, I thought. It was a wider angle picture. I did mm-hmm. a wider angle that's got the, the, the big rock over on the right side, and then it's got the, the whole island, and the birds are streaming out. And it's a pretty good picture. But it took, uh, it took Dennis, uh, uh, my picture editor, to convince me, of, oh, no, it's this one. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the tighter one. Yeah. You know, I'm always in the mode of getting more in, and he had to convince me. But So thankfully, while I was there, I screwed this 24 to 70 down and shot shot some tighter stuff mm-hmm. and um no it was uh it was one uh one hell of an evening yeah, yeah. i've heard the crossing is really rough <laughs> yeah you've so, been out there i know i've been to the hebrides but i haven't been out there no okay is there is there it must be a, a really impossible question but i wonder if there's one particular memorable photograph you can talk about as a great experience super memorable opened a, a new avenue for you anything that that was a real highlight from your career you know, um, early on, um, early on, I was still in the newspaper. I had these visions of following in the footsteps of Audrey Cartier-Bresson and W. Eugene Smith. Uh, and I was driving around small towns of Kansas looking for those you know, sort of, you know, quintessential elements of life pictures. Mm-hmm. And I, I was up in the little town of Sabetha, Kansas. And there was a woman sitting out on her front porch, an old woman in a rocking chair. And I drove around the block three times, working up the courage to go ask her if I could take her picture. Mm-hmm. Um, it was so intimidating to me. Finally, I did. I went up there. It was Mrs. Shintaffer. She didn't want to have her picture taken because uh, she had tennis shoes on that had holes in them. But then her granddaughter showed up with her great-granddaughter, the baby, and once she was holding the baby, she was fine having her picture taken. Mm-hmm. But what happened, what happened there for me was that I remember looking through my 24 millimeter lens at this scene and, and I'm doing all kinds of things, which are really just sort of um, moment pictures. They are, they are pictures of, 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 of what's happening. She's holding the baby. She's smiling at the baby, all this kind of stuff. But then I remember that there came a moment in which I, I'm I'm pulling back, 
and I'm very consciously putting one post of the porch over on the right side and the window only in so much on this side and the lines of the boards going up in just such a way and all this all this range and as I did it I realized that oh I could take this scene and and transform it from being just a recording of what was happening and to becoming a statement hmm. a statement and, and a statement essentially from the woman holding the baby about her pride mm -hmm. it was so in other words it wasn't just a little news feature picture of baby holds baby you know woman holds baby it was that ah this is the pride of generations mm -hmm. knowing the productivity of and nature of time <laughs> so, so to be a little profound about it mm. but that realization that by how you framed the, the picture and how you presented it, that you could take this uh, this moment and make it into a statement, that was pretty important in my photographic life. Right. Yeah. That, that's a, such a great answer. I'm looking at the photograph now, and I'll put a link for this for people who are listening in the show notes so they oh, can good. see that. Um, good, thank you. Fun, no, it's great. Um, okay, we're nearly at the end. We've gone so far over time, and I'm saying that every episode this season, but I'm having so much fun. Um, I'm not really apologizing <laughs> for that. Um, this is a quick fire round, so we'll we'll go fast. This round, uh, cleverly called Motor Drive. No no long answers. Okay, got it. Okay, wide angle or telephoto? Wide angle. Coffee or tea? Depends on if I'm in the, in the UK or not. <laughs> Well, this is a now a Scotland related question: whiskey or iron brew? Oh, whiskey, of course. Okay, but I do like I do drink iron brew when I'm there. <laughs> you do, um, yeah, sure. I know. We, I would have loved to talk more about your Scotland. I know you've got a lot of dis great distillery work, and I was thinking that must it's such a great subject to really get your teeth into photographically. But we just wanted to touch on other things as well. So anyway, um, okay, uh, it's whiskey over iron brew. Head or heart? Head or heart? Oh, impossible question. No fair. <laughs> okay, you're disqualified. Um, okay, how about this one? The greatest Kansan band of all time. Oh, that would be the uh, Pot County Pork and Bean Band uh, that I photographed, yes. Okay, are, are they still on the go? Oh no! This has been a long time ago. <laughs> okay, I'll try and I'll try and look something up and link it in the show notes if it's possible. Um, okay, what was the last great uh, book or movie or album that you experienced? Oh, uh, two days ago I listened to the uh, the brand new recording of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony with Manfred Honig conducting the Pittsburgh Symphony. It is bar it was bar none the 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 best new recording of the last ten years. Okay, I'm linking yeah. that in the show notes. Okay, this is the really the the linchpin question of the whole interview: expensive lens cloth or the corner of your shirt? <laughs> I, I pull I pull out my 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 t-shirt that's cotton underneath. <laughs> okay, You're, that's <laughs> a lot of people do that. How about my idea for a shirt that's got a lens cloth material on the corner? Oh, that's excellent. Oh, I'd buy them right away. Who's, do you have a favorite photographer at the moment or just generally a favorite photographer? Oh, I think I would go back. Uh, this is going going way back. I'd go to, to, to uh, 
Henri Cartier-Bresson when he was doing all those pictures of of everyday life. Yeah, that yeah. was uh, that 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 got to me and that transformed uh, what I thought photography was about. When do you feel at peace with the universe? Oh, you know, I think there there are are times when I'm uh, when my when I'm uh, by myself and. Um, the sun is going down over some uh, some little island or some stone circle, and uh, and uh, there's 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 nothing else around me to take away from the experience. That that is probably the most at peace with myself. Uh, sort of thinking about the uh, the continuation of time uh, that is so evident there. Mm-hmm. That's probably it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think we could do a whole other episode on stone circles, actually. Um, quite <laughs> interesting places to be. I just feel that connection with time, like you said. Um, I really appreciate you showing up for this and for being so giving in this chat. Thank you so much, Jim. Graham, thank you so much. I don't get to do inter- interviews with from photographers very, very often. Um, so you, uh, it's rare that I get the kind of questions that you've been asking, which are educated by actual experience and and the uh, complexities of actually doing this stuff. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening. So much to take away from that episode. Follow Jim on Instagram and check out his website for a deeper dive into his portfolio and check out some of the other fantastic photographers Jim mentioned. Remember, you can get tickets for Viewfinders Live and Evening with Jim Richardson at Eventbrite now. Link and links to everything else we spoke about are in the show notes. Thank you for your time. Enjoy your photography. I'll see you out there.